Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This podcast is intended for entertainment and opinion. Nothing discussed is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. I am your host, Grace Fowler, and today's episode is all about parapsychology. So this episode is going to kick off my series of episodes in October that are going to focus on uh, what I would call spooky stuff. (laughs) Um, So that means I'm going to be taking a look at some horror films, some tropes in horror, you know, just some pop culture stuff that that just becomes a little more relevant um, during the month of October. So, but to kick it off, I wanted to talk about a a topic in psychology that I think is really interesting um, and connects to a lot of the things that we see in horror films um, or in more, or in, in, in pop culture things that focus more on like the supernatural, um, and that is parapsychology. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. So parapsychology actually includes quite a few disciplines, including more of the hard sciences like physics and mathematics, um, but it's basically the study of the paranormal, right? So things that are outside of what we can um, normally explain with science. Um, the official definition that I pulled from an article by Ray Biron from last year is that parapsychology is the study of psi phenomena, uh, or a subfield of consciousness studies concerned with interactions between individuals and their environment that transcends the ordinary constraints of space and time. So basically, parapsychology um, is looking at all of these things that can't be explained by the rules of uh, the rules of, of the science that governs like space and time, right? So we're talking tele- telepathy, we're talking knowing the future, we're talking moving things with your brain. That's what parapsychology is looking at. And you'll see if you read any of this literature that I cite, um, they use the term psi a lot, and that kind of is the umbrella term of like the goop that makes parapsychology go. <laughs> I know that's so that's like a gross way to explain it, but like a sigh is kind of like what is driving these paranormal things. Um, and so interestingly enough, between th- there there's been kind of an ebb and flow in the interest in parapsychology, and there was um, there was quite an influx of it in like the very early 1900s and if you think of the the context of the time then this is when like the spiritualism movement was really big um you know people were like just casually going to seances you would like to be entertained you would go watch spiritualists do shows where they're saying they're talking to ghosts or they're you know predicting the future and so there is some research that uh or like documentation that has come out of that which was basically like psychologists and scientists uh, trying to prove, like, does this stuff really happen? And I'm going to be very honest, I didn't read a lot of that 
uh, old research because it's really, it's really boring. <laughs> it's really, really boring. And I just, it just didn't seem as relevant because they're not using the same types of like research methodology that, that more modern parapsychology research does. Now, interestingly enough, in between 1990 and 2000, public support for paranormal, paranormal phenomenon in general increased. Um, and so we'd had this like big burst of it in the 1900s, and then it kind of ebbed and flowed as we moved through the 1900s, but as we come around the cusp into uh, the 21st century, this like public support and public endorsement of paranormal stuff begins to increase. Um, and so the, the field of parapsychology kind of got reinvigorated um, where it was, it was kind of starting to die out. So um, unfortunately, I think we're kind of back to, as you know, we're, we're kind of 20 years in <laughs> to the 21st century. We're kind of back to an area where, where parapsychology is kind of starting to die off and a lot of the big names in parapsychology are getting older and, and you know, starting to phase out of the field. So um, I don't know what the future of parapsychology is, but I did want to spend a little time talking about it um, because I just think it's so funny. <laughs> um, just funny because like it's uh, it's just so, it's kind of cool, but it's also a little weird that you'd spend your whole life like trying to prove that people can tell the future. Um, <laughs> or, you know, read each other's thoughts, and there are some very interesting characters in the world of parapsychology. Additionally, um, I think it is kind of a good way to tie psychology, right? That's the point of the show. We tie psychology into um, pop culture, into zeitgeist, and so parapsychology, I think, just really, really sets the tone well for um, integrating psych psychological concepts into the rest of the episodes that will be occurring this week, or this month. Um, so with that being said, I did want to kind of get the skepticism uh, address at the top. So the Rayburn article that I quoted before about what parapsychology is, is actually an article that kind of um, sums up, uh, what would you call it? It kind of sums up like the, I guess, the biggest arguments from skeptics of, of parapsychology. And so um, this article was focused on kind of showing why a lot of these um, parapsychology studies can't be replicated, or when they are replicated, they're done, you get like wildly different results every time. And so um, Rayburn laid out this, this argument that, that basically there is a uh, there's a paradox of studying psi or studying paranormal activity, right? And so the first half of the paradox is that if you can prove the existence of psi phenomenon with classical science instruments or classical scientific experiments, then it kind of proves that, well, that, that experiment was inappropriate because um, like psi could, shouldn't be able to be observed in a normal environment, right? So then if we can't observe psi in a scientific setting, then we can never use scientific experiments or, or like classical science to prove the existence of psi, right? So it's like this is, <laughs> this is like the paradox of parapsychology is, you know, if we're making the assumption that like so if something is paranormal or supernatural, right, it's kind of outside of the natural world or outside of the, na the like normal understanding of space and time, then how can you use like natural and normal 
or like ordinary ways of measuring it, like ordinary scientific ways of measuring this phenomenon that doesn't exist in the same re- realm that the methods of measuring it exist. Like, did you see? It? <laughs> I know this is like this is probably a lot. This is like very philosophical, but I just kind of wanted to lay that out there because there's a lot of back and forth about do any of these parapsychology studies even really prove anything? Um, and are the results that people reporting, are they, you know, results that we can rely on? Are they even, or are they like selectively reporting results that seem to support what they wanted to find? Um, and I think Ray Baron has this like very like empathetic view of the paras- like parapsychologists. Like, you know, they're kind of setting up this idea of like, well, you know, there's this paradox of like, you may never be able to prove this phenomenon in a way that will be accepted by the scientific community, um, even if that phenomenon does exist. So I think that's a nice, like, empathetic, (laughs) skeptical take. Um, Because as I read through, uh, or I go through some of this other stuff, you may find yourself being a little skeptical. (laughs) And that's totally okay. Um, So with that being said, I wanted to break down um, what has been classified by the five major categories of parapsychology. So these five categories actually come from a documentary called Something Unknown is Doing We Don't Know What, um, which is kind of one of the only, honestly, documentaries that I could even find about uh, parapsychology and, like, the, the scientists who are researching these phenomenon. Now, I'm going to be honest and say I did not watch the documentary, and honestly the biggest reason is because the title just bothers me. It's so confusing. Um, it's apparently, like, a quote from, like, Sherlock or something. Um, but I watched the trailer, and I, I read through their website, which I, I will link in the, uh, the show notes, and so they kind of they list out kind of who are the um, main, who are some of these main scientists that are interviewed in the documentary and, and which like category of parapsychology they fall under. Um, so I did use this as a guide for the layout of this episode. But so of the five categories, we have psychokinesis, um, telepathy, precognition, healing, and clairvoyance. So three of these five have quite a bit of research behind them. The two other ones don't, um, and I'll get into that when I get to those categories. Um, so let's just start off with, uh, so let's just start off with psychokinesis, which is, um, like the, like moving things with your mind, basically. So if you think of, um, like if you, if you've ever watched Stranger Things and, you know, they have Eleven in the first season, she's like in the, uh, you know, you get all these flashbacks of her, like, in the lab where she's being studied and she's supposed to, like, crush the Coke can with her mental powers. Like, so Eleven has psychokinesis, right? So, um, I think that's kind of one of our most recent, well, not, maybe not most recent, because that show has been running for a while, but I, th- I think that's a good example of, like, what psychokinesis is. And so, in culture, um, it's often shown as, like, this very powerful ability, like, even if you think of Star Wars, right, like, the Force is, like, a form of psychokinesis, right, like, using your mind, using this energy that's invisible and unknowable to move things in the environment, so that, that, see how this is something that it's difficult to, to study using classical scientific, um, experiments or tools, because how are you supposed to, how do you measure an unseen energy force, um, that we don't know where it originates from, like, is it originating from the mind, um, is it originating from the environment? Like, what? We don't even know what it is, right? It's psi. 
Um, so in the past, a lot of psychokinesis studies were done using um, like spoon bending. <laughs> so like having participants come in and stare at spoons and see if they could you know, manipulate the spoon by bending it. Um, and fun fact, I just watched um, The Matrix and <laughs> they, um, you, there's like spoon bending in The Matrix, right? You have the, there's like the little kids in the Oracle's apartment um, and one of them is like bending the spoon over and over again. And, and um, you know, like in the context of The Matrix, it's not psychokinesis because it's The Matrix. Um, but spoon bending re references are out there. Um, now, in the more modern era, uh, psychokinesis is uh, usually tested with um, random number generators, like asking participants to focus their attention on having a specific number come up next, right? So a random number generator's job is just to randomly create a sequence of numbers, um, and you use a computer because people are not really capable of being truly random when we choose numbers. So we use a, a like a computer program that's that's you know spinning out these random numbers and then you have participants kind of focus their energy, focus their attention on, you know, make the number 5 come up next. And then you measure uh, you know how many times does the number 5 come up when the attention is being directed at the random number generator and then you compare that to um, like a model of truly random numbers and you see if there's like a statistically significant difference in the amount of times the number five came up when the participant was focusing on it versus when it's random. I know, very exciting stuff. This is what I'm talking about when it's like some of the parapsychology research is so boring and it's like this is such fun these are such fun topics, um, but because people are trying to prove that they're real and be like real scientists about them, it becomes very boring. And I get why. Um, so I, I hope to make it a little more fun as I, you know, talk about it. But, you know, this is this is like the grind of science, right? Like we're just going to look at random number generators and see if, uh, you know, Mary Sue over there can make a three come up a couple more times than it would in a truly random sequence. Um, now there have been some like meta-analyses, some sort of larger studies that have looked at other psychokinesis stories, which uh, you'll find is abbreviated as PK in the literature, which is really fun. And the meta-analysis did find that there there does seem to be a significant impact of psychokinesis on the random number generator. So there, in in the studies that they looked at, there did seem to be a significant difference in the numbers that came out when participants were focusing their attention on the numbers versus when it was just random. Um, but the problem is, is that a lot of these studies are very, very small, which means like maybe only a few people participate, like like 16 people could be the whole sample. Um, and they have a very small effect size when, when taken all together. So the effect size, this is for my stats nerds, you can turn off your brain right now, but <laughs> the effect size is kind of like, what is the impact of the independent variable and the dependent variable, right? So like, we may, we, we may see like, okay, these are statistically significant, right? So there are more, these numbers are not random when PK is being employed versus when it is not. But the effect of being, of like PK being applied to the random number generator or not is not very big. It's like a weak effect. So the impact of PK on a random number generator is not very big, um, and we're not looking at very many people doing it at the same time, or, or in the sample. So 
and this ties back to the like the skeptics argument, right? Which is like, well, you you're reporting, or you're you know the headline of the article is that you know psychokinesis discovered, um, but the reality is is that it's it it's barely impacting <laughs> the psychokinesis is barely impacting the outcome of the random number generators. So that's that's just kind of like the state of of psychokinesis as as a study is one study that, well, there's one guy that does a lot of this random number generator stuff. In fact, there is a whole lab that, that is run where they have these random number generators set up in like 40 different locations around the world. They're kind of always pumping out random numbers. And then the, the scientists go back and look at, okay, what were the sequences like when certain world events were happening? And they've shown over time that there are um, times during global events that are like highly emotional global events, and I'll get into what those could be in a minute, um, there is a significant deviance away from the expected sequences and from potential, like, all projected computer models. So maybe there is something to psychokinesis. So so what they've shown is that, um, so let's say you've been running random number, number generators for five years, you're looking at, you're looking at kind of like what is the expected mean of difference from a truly random sequence. So if a, if a truly random sequence is kind of like our baseline, we're looking to see how often on average are the numbers away from the baseline. And the expected for that is zero. There's zero difference, right? So they have sh the this lab has shown that there is deviance away from that expected zero. So there are times where the sequences that come out of the random number generators are not truly random, and and significantly so. It's not just like okay, sometimes like two numbers are not random, <laughs> right? It's like there's a significant amount of 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 like non-random numbers coming out of this, the generator. Um, and at the, then simultaneously what they do is they use computer models to project like what if we did this this same random number generation 250 times, right? So for, our, for a span of an hour, what if we resampled, resampled, resampled this ra these random numbers? Is it possible to get this same sequence that we are saying is significantly different than the baseline? Um, and they're saying that even when they run these projected computer models that are significant, that are, you know, that are different from the original, um, the actual data they're getting is different than the projected computer model. So something is happening that during certain global events, high emotion global events, um, the random number generators are being impacted. And so one of the <laughs> very unique studies that have come out of this lab is one that looked at the random number generator data after the events of September 11th, 2001. So Nelson and his team um, looked at the data. So they, they looked at what the structure of the numbers were coming out of before and during the events of, of, no, of September 11th. So they found that there was statistically significant structure to the random numbers being generated during much of the day on September 11th. And in fact, the structure that that was significantly different than the random numbers um, showed up in the data at least two to four hours before the attacks even began. So 
they also posit that this could be evidence of precognition, which is another another area of parapsychology. So this one is kind of a combo. So what the authors are saying is that the amount of intense emotional uh, attention on the events of 9/11. Cause think about think about 9/11, right? Like everyone was watching the TV. At least everyone in America. I'm sure there are people around the world watching it too. But everyone's glued to their televisions, watching the news, wanting to see what happens next. There is this, like, there's this global attention where a lot of people are focusing on the same thing at one time. And so their argument is that that attention, and especially because it's highly emotional, it's, like, highly charged, um, it's impacting the physical world by impacting these random number generators. Um, And because they saw this structure before the attacks had even happened, not even before they were televised, because they were tele, at least the second impact was televised, right? Before the the events were even televised, they started to see this structure, um, like this. So it's to them, it suggests that like there was an awareness that something was going to happen, which began to influence the the structure of the random number. Number generators. Now, in the article where they talk about 9-11, they also talked about they found a very similar impact um, during events in Yugoslavia. There was a bombing in the, I think sometime in the 90s. I don't believe it's called Yugoslavia anymore. (laughs) But when it was called Yugoslavia, there was a bombing and they found a similar structure. They also had measured the structure of the numbers um, for three years in a row on New Year's Eve. And they found that there was similar structure where there was structure to it. It wasn't just random um, on New Year's Eve for each three of each year of the three-year period. So their conclusion is that basically if you draw a collective awareness through an event, it seems to have some sort of influence on the random number generators. Even though the people experiencing the collective awareness are not thinking about the random number generators, right? It's not like when you're counting down to New Year's, you're, you're thinking... Like, I hope that this number comes up on the random number generators, and I would imagine that most of us don't even know that these things are running <laughs> all the time. Um, but there's something about the amount, ju- just like having an event where people are focusing attention and awareness, and especially high emotion, um, is having like a ripple effect on the natural world, the physical world that the random number generators are sensitive to. Um, so that's, and that's Nelson's kind of place in parapsychology like this is his thing him and his lab they do this random number generator stuff um and if you look him up you'll find a ton of papers he's published over the years um where they go back and review this data and i will say the data is is compelling especially when they demonstrate that with the projected computer models it was still like a significant amount of structure i just i have trouble seeing how it's nothing more than a correlation of, you know, <laughs> I don't know. I don't, this is, this doesn't seem as compelling to me in, in terms of like proving psychokinesis or precognition, but it is interesting that, and it kind of makes you think like, why could there be significant structure to the output of these generators when high events are happening? And maybe it's just as simple as the observers the, the people who work in the lab are focused more on the random number generators because they're expecting a specific result. But I don't know. That's, I leave that up to you. I leave, I leave you with this kind of, this is, this is what psychokinesis research is about. Um, I 
think that we should definitely get back into the spoon bending. I think that's <laughs> very interesting. I would love to see a follow-up um, on getting people to bend spoons. So that's psychokinesis. So the next category we have is telepathy or reading minds. Um, and one of the ways that this is studied a lot is with the phenomenon of sensing when someone is staring at you. So Paris, people who do research in parapsychology who specifically are interested in telepathy have focused on this, con this, this is how they measure telepathy. Of If you're sitting in a room, someone is sitting behind you, um, you can sense if they are looking at you or not. And there, there have been some studies that have reported a significant number of participants in their samples have been able to accurately guess if the person is staring at them or not. Now, you do have a 50-50 chance of being right every time <laughs> because the person is either staring at you or isn't. Um, but some of these studies have also included, they've also included uh, protocols where like people are behind one-way mirrors, um, you know, like the person in the room, the, the, the participant participating in the experiment, like can't see, uh, if they turned around, they wouldn't be able to see anyone. So, you know, I think these kind of studies have been replicated quite a bit. Um, and there does seem to be at least, um, a pattern of people being able to kind of sense when someone is staring at you. Now, again, you have a 50-50 chance every time <laughs> someone is either staring at you or not staring at you. And, re and remember, it does, it's not a cumulative probability, right? It resets every time. You're always at 50-50. Um, now, there was a very interesting article. Um, there was a very interesting article by Schlitz, Weissman, Watt, and Raiden. And so Schlitz, Weiss, Schlitz and Raiden are actually... Um, big proponents of parapsychology. Um, Weissman, and I don't know about Watt, but Weissman is definitely a skeptic. And so this this paper that the four of them worked on had a very interesting, what do you call it, um, setup where they, they purposely designed it to have their, their, for there to be a skeptic, for there to be a skeptic experimenter and a believer, basically. So they've done this study at the time of the article, which is, was 2006, they had done this three times. So they had the, they had Schlitz and they had Weissman. So Schlitz is your believer, Weissman is your skeptic. They had them each observe different trials of this, can you guess if someone is staring at you or not. Now two out of the three times, they found a significant increase in ability to detect someone staring at them when the person observing was a believer in telepathy. So when Schlitz was on call, <laughs> um, they found significant results versus when Weissman was on call. Now, the third of time they did this, they didn't find any significant differences. And they were, I, I did appreciate this team's way of reporting their results. They basically said that, okay, we've got some mixed results. We had some results leaning this way, some results leaning the other way. Um, we're not going to say that this is conclusive and it's, and it's definitely not enough to debunk our hypothesis because we did have two times when it didn't debunk. So they just kind of laid out what they did and, and what they saw and they don't really make any conclusions except for we need to do more research, um, in this arena. 
Now, I did think it was interesting that they, they did find that, so when Schlitz was there and is like this big believer in telepathy, then we see these significant results. So there's almost a suggestion of like the belief in parapsychology may make it manifest more strongly or like the belief in psi. Um, and, and so I think it kind of muddies the water, right? Of like, well, is, was it telepathy where the person could tell if they were being stared at or is it telepathy because they can feel the message coming from the observer, right? From the believer. Um, so the, I, th- I would say that like Schlitz, this article is a really good example of people doing like really rigorous parapsychology research. Um, where they're being very careful to not make conclusions that they cannot make, um, but they are, they're just presenting what they found, and their conclusion is, we need to do more research. I like that. I think that's very rigorous. On the other side of parapsych, of telepathy research, is uh, my man Sheldrake. (laughs) Now, Sheldrake uh, has a very sketchy website you can go on where you can participate in an experiment that he runs where you and a group of friends or family members sign up with your phone numbers. At some point after you sign up, you will receive a phone call from, I think they say the number will be like telepathy study. Um, they call you, you pick up, they ask you to guess who is going to call and then they have you record, did you guess right? So, like, let's say I signed up my my parents and my brother. Um, I get the call and they say, guess who's going to call you, or use your telepathy <laughs> to guess who's going to call you next. I say my mom, and then they connect me with whoever the call was. So, and then I'm supposed to record, you know, I guessed my mom and then my dad called, or I guessed my mom and my mom called. Um, and then he keeps all of this data and, and runs it. Now, that you can also do a similar protocol where it's like about email. So you put in people's emails and then you'll get an email that says like, who do you think is going to email you? <laughs> and then you report on that. So again, this isn't super great research because first of all, um, there's like no way to control. Like I could be in the room with every family member when the phone call comes, right? Like, um... I could be in cahoots with them. I could just lie (laughs) because you're not observing me. I'm just at home logging onto this website. Um, And Sheldrake uses this data that he gets from this stuff to say that he's proven or he's shown that you can telepathically communicate. Now, Sheldrake also has this other theory because he's um, actually a biologist um, by training he has this whole idea that telepathy works because we have something called morphic resonance and morphic resonance is kind of like, uh, like my brain and like the energy I create can communicate with you. Like you can sense my energy. Um, in fact, he actually wrote a book about how dogs know when their owners are coming home and it's not just about time, um, in which he supposedly did some experiments where, they would, um, people would come home at different times, uh, you know, like unexpectedly, and they would observe the dog's behavior, and the dogs would, you know, start to get excited before the person came home, even though they were coming home at a different time. So this is Sheldrake's whole thing, that basically, like, animals in nature communicate with each other through morphic resonance, which is telepathy, 
And because humans are animals, we have the ability to communicate through morphic resonance as well. Uh, it's just that we're like maybe not always attuned to it. So, um, I mean, I think I've made it kind of clear here how I feel about <laughs> this guy. I don't think it's great. It's not rigorous research, right? Like, don't come at me with a, a website where people can just, you know, log in whatever they want. Now, he does have some very interesting theoretical underpinnings to his concept of, of morphic resonance, so I would encourage you to check out the sources uh, on the sources page to read more about his work. Essentially, um, as the research regarding telepathy stands, we have not been able to prove, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt that telepathy works you know there's no um uh you know you know in the shining where the little boy you know can reach out to dick holleran all the way to florida <laughs> with his mind you know we we haven't been able to demonstrate that in people we have maybe been able to demonstrate that you can tell when someone is staring at you so we have a little bit of telepathy <laughs> um but nothing nothing is i think dramatic as as we might encounter in pop culture um, okay, so the next, so this is the next and third category that has the most research involved with it, um, and this is precognition. So this precognition is basically like predicting the future. Classic example of this is Minority Report, right? Pre-crime. We're talking about trying to predict uh, into the future, seeing that people are going to commit a crime, so arresting them before they commit commit the crime. Right, that's precognition. So, um, I did read this very interesting article by Mossbridge and Radin. And remember, Radin is one of these big parapsychology guys. Um, this is actually quite a recent article from 2018. But uh, I thought they did a pretty good job of... They kind of laid out um, where the field stands right now in regards to precognition. And they did make it very clear that um, you have to be really careful with self-reports of precognition as memory is really fickle and not necessarily always linear. So the, the, the most common example of this is like if people tell you, or maybe you've experienced this, right, where it's like, oh, I had a dream that such and such was going to happen and then it happened. This happens a lot with, with like, grieving, right? You may say, like, oh, I had a dream that so-and-so was going to die the night before they did die. Now, the authors argue that um, it's probably most often what happens is we have the dream after we learn that somebody dies or that something is going to happen. Um, but because of the way that our brains handle memory and the way that memory is not always beholden to, like, a linear timeline, um, sometimes it gets jumbled up. So we remember the dream before the event. I think is is you know quite interest uh, an interesting and rational explanation. Um, and so and basically they 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 say this to be like well if you're gonna do research on precognition it shouldn't be self reports right you you don't want to just survey you know 50 people on the street and say have you ever had a dream about the future that came true because it's they may say yes but it, we don't necessarily have confirmation that the dream came before the event. Um, now their theory, I guess, it's not their theory, but the theory laid out is kind of that, like, precognition could potentially be a result of unconscious sensory processing. Your brain is below the level of your awareness processing sensory information, you know, sights, smells, tactile stuff, uh, all processing it under and sending you message to, messages to react to those, that sensory information before you're aware 
your consciousness, your awareness is knows why you're reacting that way. So if you think of when you put your hand on a hot stove, you pull away your hand before your brain even thinks, ooh, that is hot, I should take my hand off. This article talks about how for uh, a, a quite a while, quite a while, the tradition in the scientific field was that it is impossible for unconscious processes to influence conscious decisions. Um, now, for those of you who are familiar with like psychoanalytic tradition, you'll know that like theoretically, uh, clinicians have have had this idea for a very long time that like unconscious process influences conscious decisions without our knowledge. But um, you know, as we kind of moved in toward toward more of a medical model, uh, more evidence based scientific approaches to the world of psychology. There was this kind of phasing out of that of that it's impossible for your unconscious processes to influence what your your aware conscious brain is doing, and that's there's really been a shift in the last few decades um, away from that and toward this understanding that yes, there are unconscious processes happening. We can't be aware of all of the stuff that's going on in our brain at the same time because it would uh, it would literally drive us crazy, and we don't need to be aware of all of it. Um, so this article is kind of talking about how, like, okay, now that that's a more accepted idea, we're kind of moving back into this idea of, of, um, you know, perhaps we can research this phenomenon of precognition and have a way of explaining it as this type of sensory processing. So they point to this type of, of kind of like a subtype of research on something called pre-sentiment, um, which is often this research is done with elite athletes. So... If you, I'm not great with sports, but if you know of a sport that has an elite athlete and how they kind of, you know, they may seem to, you know, you may not be able to defend their shots because they're always a step ahead of you. Um, or they see moves on the field or in the game that nobody else can see. And it's almost like they're reacting to things that haven't happened yet. That's pre-sentiment. Um, and there is some evidence in this um, this subset of research that shows that um, these types of elite athletes are actually integrating unconscious sensory information to inform their performance decisions in a way that the waking brain is not necessarily aware of, right? So, you know, when you, you know, when you dodge two steps ahead of the person guarding you, it may not be something that you are even aware of that you were doing, but it is a result of your brain integrating um, sensory information from that other person that they were going to move into a position to block you. Um, which I think is kind of very, that is very cool. Like, it is very cool that, um, the brain does that for us, right? That the brain can very smoothly integrate things that we aren't even fully aware of that appear in our consciousness, um, but still our brain is adapting and, and, and integrating this information, right? And again, like the example, like you pull your hand away from the stove before you even know that it's hot. I'm sure that you, if you really sit down and think about it, there are quite a few times where um, you've thought to yourself like, oof, if I had just, you know, been standing two inches to the left, that would have got me. Or, you know, if I hadn't stepped off the curb, um, if I had stepped off the curb two seconds earlier, like I would have gotten hit by that car, right? So I, I think even even the, the researches with elite athletes, I think a lot of us have had ex experiences that kind of 
um, point to this presentiment. Now, the issue with presentiment is that it is like within microseconds of happening, right? It's like, you know, uh, you know, you're shooting a three pointer two seconds before the person defending you throws their hand up, right? We're not talking very far into the future. Um, so, and that's kind of how this article wraps up is saying that we don't really know what full precognition is, right? Like predicting the future or knowing things about the future. Um, and there aren't a whole lot of accepted theories about that because it, it goes beyond this like sensory processing issue, right? Like what, what could be happening that allows your brain to access information that hasn't you know, come up yet, right? Like, if you have a dream about something that's going to happen in three months, how is that possible? Um, and again, this goes back to the paradox of studying psi. Like, how do you measure that? How do you measure if something is going to happen in three months or not? I don't know. That's why I'm not a parapsychologist. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, personally, I found the precognition research to be the most compelling overall, just because there is, I think we do really have so much evidence for there's just so much of the brain that we don't understand and that we don't maybe have access to all the time. And I'm not talking about the 10% brain thing, because that's a lie. I'm just going to tell you right now, you do use your brain, <laughs> use your whole brain. Um, you don't use 100% of your brain capacity at any given time, but it's more than 10%. But there are processes happening in our brain that we are unaware of, and there's a reason for it. And, and you know, our brains have kind of evolved to be able to do that without needing our direct attention. And that's amazing. Um, and it may not be technically paranormal, and it's not paranormal if we understand how it happens, um, but I think it is really interesting and very compelling um, and kind of hints at, you know, how cool our brains are. Um, but enough about me loving the brain. The next two categories we're going to talk about are the ones that don't have much research, so I'm going to just kind of whew, <laughs> glide on through these. So the next category is healing. So... Um, this one was tough to find because, first of all, the people that the documentary cited, I could not find them. They don't have any, like, peer-reviewed studies that I could see. Um, and if you just type, like, healing or energy healing into Google Scholar, um, you're going to get a lot of weird stuff. So I decided to focus in on a specific method of, of energy healing for this article um, that's called Reiki. And so Reiki is actually a Jap Japanese method of energy healing. Um, and so this was a meta-analysis meta that looked at several studies where Reiki was used. Um, the range of things that the studies purported to, to have an impact on was, was wild. It was everything from like pain management or like anxiety reduction to like actual biological changes in like hormone levels, you know, like stress hormone levels, and like, um, the, uh, other stuff, other body stuff, right? Like, the, that Reiki would have an impact on your physical body. Um, and so, uh, one thing that really stuck out to me from this article was in the literature review, like, kind of in the intro, they talked about how, um, like, energy healing in general, so not just Reiki, but, but energy healing in general, um, is found in a lot of different cultures, and, often kind of represent how that culture believes how illness is are contracted and prolonged. So energy healing when it's present in a culture kind of suggests that there is um, it suggests that there's a type of there's a, a belief system in place about a, an illness and, and how it can be healed, right? So that belief in this can work 
contributes to what may be seen as effectiveness. Um, now, however, unfortunately, the meta-analysis found that um, the studies did not adhere to techniques to qualify as truly experimental. So when you're doing research, scientific research, and you're designing an experiment, you need to have certain techniques in place for it to be considered an experiment. Otherwise, it's quasi-experimental. Things that are quasi-experimental, quasi you cannot definitively say that the variables in that study cause an outcome because you didn't control for enough error and so you're kind of suggesting there could be a relationship between these things but you can't conclusively say like A causes B. And if you're doing an experimental, a true experimental study where you've implemented these things then you have more legs to stand on to say A causes B. And one of the things that's really important is um, blinding in the study. And blinding means that the people running the study don't know who's getting the treatment or not. So like in this case, uh, some of these studies separated it. So like some people got traditional Reiki and some people were like in a control group or a waitlist group so they didn't get Reiki or they got like a, an approximation of like an energy healing, right? But it wasn't traditional Reiki. Now, if the study was blind, then the people collecting the data don't know which participant is getting which treatment, if they're getting true Reiki or not, if they're in the placebo. So if you don't do that, then the people who are, interac who are interacting with the data knows <laughs> who's getting the treatment or not, and that's problematic because then you introduce experimenter bias into the study and you may interact with the participants who are getting the Reiki in a different way than you interact with the people who are not, which can influence the results that you get. So like, for example, let's say that you're participating in the study and you're in the placebo group and you get your fakey Reiki <laughs> and then you go talk to the experimenter to, to debrief and the experimenter is like kind of blowing you off, you know, isn't really paying you much attention, is just kind of asking you questions and is like, ugh, how's your pain level today? And you're going to be like, whoa, <laughs> I must not be getting... The and and that, that's also the problem, is then the participant may find out that they're not getting the treatment. And so if you don't believe that you're getting the treatment, then you may not think that you're getting better, so then you're going to report that your pain didn't get any better. So now you've like amplified the impact of Reiki when it didn't need to be. So that's the, the importance of blinding. They also, uh, to be truly experimental, you have to have randomized groups. So that means, like, let's say 10 people come into a clinic to participate in a study about Reiki. You can't just go, okay, number one, you go here, number two, you go there. You, you have to find a random way. And as I mentioned before, with random number generators, people are very bad at being random. So you would have to employ a thing of like, okay, the first 10 people walk into the room, they're going to pull a number uh, out of the bowl, and if you have an even number, you go to group A, and if you have an odd number, you go to group B. Okay, that's random, because they just pulled a number out of a bowl, you didn't have any decision in which group went to which technique. So all of that to say, the studies in this meta-analysis didn't do any of that stuff. So it's hard to even say that they can conclusively, that they can conclude that the Reiki had any impact on the outcome variables, so pain, anxiety, hormones, whatever. The meta-analysis people, though, did find that it does seem 
to be that the number of experience for Reiki practitioners matters. So people ha who had at least three years of experience doing Reiki were the most effective. If you're going to engage in energy healing, particularly in, in Reiki, you should be going to someone who has more experience. And, and I think my opinion on, on why energy healing in general works for people or appears to work for people is I think a, a portion of it is a placebo effect, right? Of like if you, especially when you believe in it, right? So you have a belief that this thing works and the placebo effect kicks in. And let me tell you, the placebo effect is really powerful. You know, there have been some studies that have shown that like it does actually reduce it does actually reduce your pain, it's not just like perception stuff. Plus, in energy healing, you're getting the attention of one person on you for a while. And with energy, they don't even have to touch you, right? That's the point of energy healing, is they don't have to touch you. Um, but you're still getting the attention of one person. And if you are a clinical person like I am, like if you do clinical work, you, you know and you've seen the research that one of the kind of common factors of therapy is that just like kind of having one person you know that you build a relationship with who is like a stable <laughs> consistent person and is attending to you for an hour every week is something that helps with the process of therapy so I think that's also probably true for other types of healing and having a Reiki practitioner you know just kind of be with you be in your space and and be like a calming presence is healing. And unfortunately, the way that our medical system is set up, particularly in the West and especially in the US, you don't get that kind of attention from your medical providers. Like, have you ever gone to a doctor and been able to like sit for an hour and kind of talk through all of your symptoms? If, unless you have very good rich people insurance, <laughs> I'm guessing your experience is not that. And so, you know, not to get too off topic here, but I do think that that contributes to a lot of the continued medical issues that people have is that they don't get true they don't get this like boost to their healing because they're not getting this attention so engaging in things like energy healing I don't think there's any evidence that it's going to make you worse if it's not in place of good medical treatment right I'm not saying to replace all of your medical treatment with energy healing but it seems as though the placebo effect and the effect of having somebody believe in your healing and spend time with you could increase, you know, outcomes for you. So I would say, although there wasn't great research because it's just such a big topic, um, there this one seems to me to be the most applicable to, like, everyday life. Like, I don't know how relevant psychokinesis is to you, but, like, energy healing might be a little more relevant. Um, and so I think it's also good encouragement for parapsychologists to kind of keep studying this and, and focusing in on this and trying to help us to understand what is the secret sauce that, that could make energy healing work. Um, and maybe it's not actually about the energy, <laughs> right? It, it's more about the, the relationship. But anyway, I digress. So the last topic we have is clairvoyance. And I could not find any relevant studies for this. So clairvoyance is, again, it's, it's kind of like about the future... Um, but, you know, going off of the Something Unknown documentary, they defined it as, like, being able to view a time or place that one is not in. So if you've ever heard the term of remote viewing, this is kind of encompassed under clairvoyance. Now, interestingly enough, when I was trying to do the research for this, um, if you type in clairvoyance into, like, research databases, a lot of, um, like, tech articles come up, because apparently this is also a term in machine learning, 
Um, but I wasn't about to read any of those because they were not relevant. Now, I did find one very weird abstract. I could only find the abstract of it. It's an article written in 1992, but it, the title of it, listen for this, are telepathy, clairvoyance, and hearing possible in utero? Suggestive evidence as revealed during hypnotic age regression studies of prenatal memory. So this guy was trying to show that a fetus in utero can communicate telepathically and through clairvoyance with the mother and get this he's he thinks from the emotional moment the mother knows she is pregnant so at the moment that a a, a person who is pregnant becomes aware of their pregnancy they can have telepathic communication with the fetus and the main method of data collection in this study Again, as outlined in the abstract, so I don't, you know, I don't have a whole lot of information about it. But the study used age regression hypnosis as its main method of data collection. So age regression hypnosis is where you go under hypnosis, right? Um, but they kind of have you go back through time to regress to the age you were when something happened. So sometimes this this is done when you know trying to work through maybe like. A stuck point you have as a child or like a traumatic event um, but in this case um, they're having the participants age regress back to when they were a fetus <laughs> um, and remember the way that they spoke with their mothers through telepathy and I find that absolutely insane <laughs> like I like this was published in the journal of prenatal and perinatal psychology and health so I mean, there has to be something to it. I couldn't find the whole article, so maybe maybe there is something more in the whole article, and if anyone has it and wants to share it with me, um, you know, I'm more than happy to take a look at it. But from the abstract alone, there was just a lot going on, and I think that uh, I'm going to come down on the side of, I don't think that it's clairvoyance that, uh, you know, pregnant people communicate with their, through, through with their fetuses, <laughs> I just don't think that's happening. Um, but again, feel free to, to show me how I'm wrong um, if you have the article or if you have any other evidence of this happening. But I think just in in general in parapsychology, clairvoyance and remote viewing don't seem to be, be as um, as much of a focus. And, and with healing too. It's the, the other three categories seem to be a bigger focus. So that was the zany world of parapsychology. Um, I realized that I taught a lot of stat stuff, a lot of like scientific stuff, so I hope that this also can um, increase your kind of like awareness of how scientific information is is, is come to and, and disseminated, um, and that even if you walk away as a skeptic of parapsychology, you can continue to be a skeptic, a healthy skeptic, right, thinking about to conspiratorial thinking, a healthy skeptic um, of information that is presented to you, and, and start to understand how to interrogate uh, sources of information better. Um, but that being said, thank you for listening. Um, I can't wait to kick off this month of spooky stuff. Um, and with that being said, I'll see you in the next episode. To see the sources and resources mentioned in the episode, visit psychologicallymindedpod.com. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming episodes, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. Please subscribe and review the podcast. 
Thank you, and see you in the next episode.